I'll tell you, it has been a few weeks since I've been able to be up here, and for whatever reason, that makes me uh, more about just as nervous as it was the first time that I came up here. So I don't know. <laughs> That's how it works sometimes, though, right? So I know we've had about a month or so off, but we are going to be jumping back into Acts this morning. Um, so if you would go ahead and turn with me to Acts chapter 15. Acts 15. While you're flipping through your Bible to Acts, uh, since we haven't been here in a few weeks, I do want to kind of give a little bit of an overview of where we were when we were last here. So when we left Paul and Barnabas, they were closing in on the end of their first missionary journey. They've been traveling to all these different cities, making all these converts of both Jews and Gentiles to faith in Jesus, planting churches as they went. And even though that they... Uh, made these new converts and planted these new churches in all of these cities, everywhere they went, they made some serious enemies along the way as well. Enemies that were perfectly fine using violence against them. We read in Acts 14 verse 19 that they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing he was dead. And instead of Paul packing it up and saying, forget this and moving on like I'm sure I probably would and most of us would, he kept pushing on. He goes to the next city on his mission and preaches the gospel again. There's just, there's just no stopping him from doing this. And it doesn't matter what's going to happen to him, right? He knows this call that God has placed on his life, and he's going to be faithful to that call no matter what. And now as we'll read this morning, Paul and Barnabas are back in Antioch and a debate breaks out. What we're going to see here in these next few weeks is I really... I think it's a test for the early church. From the top down of the church, it's a test that puts forward a very serious question that I think even we have to think about today. Is the Christian faith about salvation by God's grace through faith alone in Christ Jesus? Or is it just a furtherance of the Jewish system that says we should still follow all of the rigid codes, signs, and ceremonies? I want you to think about that question as we go through these next few weeks and really ask yourself, is Jesus enough? So let's go ahead and look at our text together. It's going to be Acts 15 verses 1 through 5 this morning. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Amen. Man, struggled through that one this morning, didn't I? I'll tell you what, that nervousness, man, it gets to you sometimes. 
So as I said a moment ago, what we're really going to be looking at these next couple weeks is a, is a controversy in the church. And this controversy leads to what is called the Council of Jerusalem, right? So for historical context, uh, this controversy and this council took place somewhere between 48 and 50 AD, right? And it was called to resolve this disagreement over circumcision that they had in the church in Antioch. This disagreement has, a, has much, wider, much wider implications than just this main topic, though, right? Because if it is true that circumcision in accordance with the law is needed for salvation, then a much wider conversation would need to be have about what that would mean, right? About how the law needed to be seen by the church and in the church when it came to Gentile believers, and since the church was exploding among Gentiles, it needed to be figured out as quick as possible to stop any type of split this early in the church. And another quick reference point uh, before we start really digging in. This controversy in part is the basis for Paul's letter to the Galatian church, right, who are struggling with this type of issue in their own right. All right, so these kind of sections of scripture kind of go hand in hand together, and you can really read them together to get a full picture of what's going on. But digging into our text this morning, we get the groundwork before we see what happens in the council, right? We have these men who came down from Judea to Samaria to tell the Gentiles what they needed to be, do to be considered Christians. They were common, they're what we commonly call uh, Judaizers, Right? Judaizers were a group of Jewish Christians who still held to the law of Moses. And the issue that we really see in this verse, verse is about how the Gentiles could come into the church and not if they could come into the church. Right? And that's an important point because so often, as we're going to see later on in the book of Acts, the pushback is really whether or not the Gentiles should be allowed in the church. So we're already starting off on a little bit of a better foot than we're going to get later on, right? These men were arguing that the Gentiles must adhere to the law of Moses, which would include the physical sign of circumcision, and really by that making the argument that the Gentiles would have to become Jews before they could become Christians. And this was a very serious concern to them, right? I mean, it had to be. Traveling from Judea to Syria was a 300-mile-plus journey. Right? And if we're talking about walking, it takes at least four days, if not longer, just to get to this one place and say, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And looking at the Old Testament, you can kind of see why they would think that way. Exodus chapter 12, uh, 48 and 49 says, If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover of the Lord... Let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat from it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. They took that very seriously. And in a way, I think this is really out of a place of, of wanting the Gentiles to be fully brought into the family of faith. Right? This isn't necessarily something where they're just trying to be difficult. They want to make sure that these people are brought in and made right with God the best way that they know how. Right? And was it misguided? Sure. But they're doing everything that they can. 
But by teaching the, the Gentiles this, these men really challenged Paul and Barnabas' efforts. On their mission, mission trip, Paul and Barnabas planted many churches and made many converts out of the Gentiles. And they did it with the teaching that it was by faith alone in Jesus Christ that you would be made right with God and nothing else. And these Jewish believers, these Jewish believers believed that without the law you cannot be saved, right? So this wasn't just a secondary issue to, the, to both groups of people, right? This is a first-tier gospel issue. And these believers thought that uh, the, the Gentiles were being misguided by Paul. And we have some of those issues today, right? Most people would say that if you can't adhere to either the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed, that you're not within Orthodox Christianity, right? The Trinity is another doctrine that is a make or break for most people, right? Issues like what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 when he says, I deliver to you of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Right? It's what we call these, these closed-hand doctrines that we hold up and say that no matter if you're a Baptist, Methodist, Anglican, Pentecostal, if you're from a non-denominational church, right, wherever you fall within the wider Christian tradition, as long as you hold to these core doctrines of the faith that have been passed down for centuries at this point, you are still holding to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. It's a unity in the body of Christ in that. So Paul and Barnabas decided that this debate needed to happen and they really need to, needed to go at these men, right? It says here that they had no small dissension and debate with them. So by that wording, you would imagine that that debate probably got pretty heated. And I don't know if any of you have ever really debated theology with people before, but it can get heated really fast on the smallest of topics. But Paul and Barnabas stood strong on the simplicity of the gospel message. And by doing this, they proved that they had hearts of true shepherds. To be able to confront and dispute with those in, that insist on promoting false doctrine in the church for the safety of the flock. But these two men, they, they just could not come to an agreement. So the church sent Paul and Barnabas and Titus uh, to meet with the apostles and elders in Jerusalem on this issue. We know that Titus came with them on this trip because of what Paul writes in uh, Galatians chapter 2 when he describes this entire incident. Now on their way, they went through two cities, and I think that's really important what it says here. In, chapter th or in verse 3, it says, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and it brought great joy to all the brothers. So in these congregations, they weren't alarmed by the salvation of the Gentiles, like the Judaizers were. They celebrated it. And I think that's a really important point, right? Because what we can gather from that is that these men that were debating with Paul and causing such an issue in the church were the minority position on the issue. Even though they were loud about it and they were probably pretty convincing at the end of the day, they were still the minority position and they were still wrong. 
We can see that just by this, that a majority of Christians, even at this time, had already come to understand and believe what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, when he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Praise God. Because one thing is clear, right? As human beings, we are not at all even close able to fulfill the law on our own. The entire Old Testament is just full of stories of how God's chosen people, the Jews, failed to keep the law time after time after time after time. It's this continuous cycle of failure that we see. And when the failure is committed by one, the sacrifice has to be made to make atonement for that sin and grant forgiveness for that sin. And all of that, every single bit of that was just a foretaste of what was to come. When Jesus made the ultimate sacrifices, God in in human flesh to take upon himself the sins of the world so that all that you and I needed to do was put our faith and our trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. I know I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself there for this kind of text, but it's just so important. In verse 4, we see that uh, the group arrives into Jerusalem and are welcomed into Jerusalem, and they're giving their report to the apostles and the elders, a report of the church expanding well beyond what most of them probably thought was even possible. And we can assume that there was probably some excitement in the room, Right? because of all the things that God is doing and doing through these men and the way that the Spirit is going through. But then the party crashers come into the situation, right? We read in verse 5 that some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and they came with the same point that the men in uh, Syria came with, right? It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. Again, I want to point out, it clearly states that these men were believers, we can draw from the wording of this that they're most likely uh, coming with this claim is believers who were Pharisees before they were Christians, right? A lot like Paul. But unlike Paul, they were just like the men in Antioch. Uh, They were still holding to the laws of Moses and believed every single believer should do so. And this falls into that moralism that I talked about a few weeks ago. A legalism, really, that that seems to rear its ugly head every so often in the church. The idea that it has to be Jesus plus something that leads to our salvation and not Jesus himself. The idea that Jesus himself just isn't enough. The idea that Jesus gets the ball rolling for us, but something on our end needs to be done to push us over the edge. Those who believe in in what we would call a works-based salvation instead of a grace-based salvation, right? It's Jesus plus good works. It's Jesus plus activism for whatever cause that you may be able to come up with. It's Jesus plus, here's one, uh, whatever political candidate or party is the popular movement going on at the time. And I think a lot of us can probably say that that's a popular one right now, right? One that's lodged against me, right, from, from certain groups. Uh, Jesus plus shaving my beard. And yes, that is, a, that is a real one that I've heard before. We're in this situation that we read in our uh, scripture. 
Jesus plus keeping the law. And we all know the scripture from James too, right? Faith without works is dead. But so often that, that text gets uh, misrepresented to, to mean something that it never originally intended. Your good works, your observance of the law, your observance of whatever you may think needs to be added to Jesus, those things aren't going to save you, right? Those good works are in, are in uh, they come out of your faith. They're not done because of, how do I want to say that? I was on the roll there. Your good works happen because of your faith. They are not necessary to your faith. Does that make sense? Yes, yes, that's the word I'm looking for. That's what happens when it's not on my notes, I'll tell you what. <laughs> but all those things that you can add on, they're, they're, they're just not what saves you. You're never going to be that good enough person or do that perfect amount of good work that's just going to allow you to just waltz right into the kingdom of heaven. Christ, Christ is who saves you. Christ is who accomplishes all the things that we fail at every single day, and he does it perfectly every single time. Listen, I have friends that fall into the, fit into the mold of what I'm describing, right? I have friends in ministry that fit into that mold, right? I'm sure we all have those types of friends, and so many of them are fine people that I have no issue at all thinking that I'm going to see in the kingdom, right? They have a real and genuine faith, but they're just wrong on this issue. But praise God that nobody needs a perfect theology to be saved, amen? And this one is a little bit short this morning. So as the bad comes forward, I want to close, I want to close with this. During COVID, uh, I picked up a, a hobby of brewing coffee. And I know that sounds weird, but we're going to get there, trust me. I was doing pour, pour over, French press. I was doing my, old, my own cold brews, all of it, right? One of the most important things that I learned about coffee during that time period is coffee is perfect on its own. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> coffee in its purest and most and somewhat bitter form is the way that it should be served, right? No matter what my wife tells you. <laughs> but seriously, uh, it's the way that you get all of those tones of that flavor and the fragrance of the blue, uh, brew. But because people love to sweeten everything, we dump as much sugar and cream or whatever flavor combination you can come up with. We just toss it in there, right? And we do that because it's easier to consume. But all that sugar really does at the end of the day is it distorts the true taste and, and body of the coffee. It's the same way in the gospel in a lot of ways, right? There's only one true gospel and nothing more. We don't have to add anything to the finished work of cross on the or Christ on the cross. Not our works, not our political ideology, not our social activism, not concepts, not career status, not anything. It's just Jesus. Paul puts it this way in Galatians 2 verse 16 when he says, 
We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law. Because works of the law, by works of the law, no one will be justified. I know it's been a pretty heavy gospel-oriented message this morning, right? And a lot of this message has probably sounded very repetitive if I've, as I've gone through it, but praise God for that. Sometimes even the people that are already Christians, even the people that are in the church every single Sunday and are, in, are involved in all kinds of ministries, they still need to hear the gospel preached, amen? It's probably going to be like that for the next few weeks because in this chapter of Acts, it's really just telling us again and again the importance of the gospel and it being rightly delivered and practiced. It's such an important thing. Next week when we re return to Acts, we'll see the coming together of this council and we're going to find out the way that they stand on this issue, right? As they talk through this and debate through this together. And the question will rear itself. Will the Christian faith be about salvation by God's grace through faith in Christ alone or just the furtherance of the Jewish, Jewish systems that they had always known? We'll find out, but until then, let's pray. Father God, as we finish our time of uh, reflection in your word this morning, we are reminded all over it that the profound truth of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel message that reveals your love, your grace, your, your mercy, and your salvation. We know that through the gospel, we, we, we find hope and redemption. We were lost in, in sin, but you, God, you sent your son, Jesus, to be our savior. He lived that perfect life and, and died that death on that cross that we should have died. Rose again, conquering sin and death. And through our faith in him, we, we have that promise of eternal life. Lord, we pray that if there's anybody in this room in need of prayer or, or that wants to come to you in faith and repentance, whether it's their first time or if it's their thousandth time, we pray that they would come forward and receive that this morning. We pray that the gospel's message will not be just words that we hear every Sunday, but it will be a reality that we live every single day. Help us to be doers of the word and not just hearers of it. Empower us to, to share the gospels with others who have not yet heard it or need to hear it again. And to live out this this transformative power in our daily lives. Lord, we, we bless you this morning for all of the ways that you continue to bless us. We love you and we thank you. Great is your faithfulness forever. Amen.